So I learned something amazing. Like just before coming on here, I learned something amazing. Okay. Um, Beto O'Rourke, the presidential candidate, used to be a member of the Cult of the Dead Cow <laughs> hacking group what? in the, uh, the 90s. Wow. Awesome. I know. Uh, <laughs> sold. Three developers, one mission. Build a business to nurture personal fulfillment. It's not stupid. It's Founder Quest. <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> and now you have to go look for his byline in like the frack. Uh, I know, I know, right? Like I used to read their uh, their reports from DEF CON and, and all the conferences and stuff. And you'd yeah. be like, man, these guys are so cool. They're so much more like mature than I am. I don't know how they got all the money to go to Las Vegas and do things when, you know, I'm 17 and have no job. That's kind of how you feel about the the guy who's running for president now, probably. Yeah, probably. (laughs) So I guess not, I guess not much has changed. (laughs) Oh, speaking of, of yaks and blockers and all this stuff, uh, we finally have our, our podcast artwork as you saw. So we can now actually, this is episode number six of founder quest and Yeah, nobody's heard it, but me really. I kind of, it kind of like it like this. There's no pressure. Yeah. Should we? Should I just keep saving them to Dropbox <laughs> yeah. and that's it? I mean, like, yeah, that's cool with me. That's fine. Yeah. They can release them after we're like dead and famous. Right. Yeah. It's like I didn't want to set up the website because I don't know what colors artwork has in it, and you have to have, you know, you want to have them matched colors yeah. and stuff. So. Yeah, but now we can we can get the get the first one out. Yeah, now wow. we can cool. start rolling them out. See what people think of them. In Slack, we've been talking like all morning yesterday about all these blockers we have, right? Because, you know, when you're doing development on any sort of bigger project, like you have this idea of like the real work you want to get to, like the feature work, and then you have the things that are preventing you from doing the real work. Sometimes we call that, you know, yak shaving because in order to, you, you want a sweater, but, you know, you need yarn to make the sweater, then you need wool to make the yarn, and, and you eventually end up shaving a yak. I think that's for that. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds that about right. right. Is this a false distinction, you guys? You think there is a such thing as, as the real work? You mean like, does the real work exist or is it just all yeah, yak shaving? Yeah, the real shaving? work exists. Um, I, I think you could make a case that that it is yak shaving uh, to an extent, like anything you would do um, would, would be blocking something else at least. The reason I ask this is I had this bit of an epiphany when I was struggling through some random webpack stuff where... Uh, I was like, man, what if this is all there there really is? Like, what if this is it, guys? <laughs> kind of like an existential crisis. Yeah, kind of. Like, yeah, kind of. And it was fine. Like, I was having a good time, you know, just doing my my webpack updates and everything. But this idea that we have some sort of mythical real work to do. <laughs> well, web, web development has become, it feels like to me, it's become a lot more complex over the years. Like, I don't know. It, I, that could be an illusion too. You know, like computers have always been hard. But it feels like the amount of things that you have to do just to do web development in the first place has increased. I don't know what you, how you guys feel, but that's how it feels to me. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. I mean, uh, it's not as simple as just throwing some HTML up on the webs, you know, and, and having people see it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think whenever you're, you're building on anything, right, you have to deal with all the things you're building on top of. Kind of like when we used to write HTML and then we had to, like, write some PHP in, in our HTML. So the three of us kind of, I don't know, came of age, but we really enjoyed the rise of Rails. And I wonder if maybe that was some sort of golden moment in which things became simple enough where you could, like, build an, an entire website state-of-the-art website with the skills of like 
sort of one person, right? I remember working on Rails projects and feeling like, man, I've got this Rails stuff down. It's like, I can go over here, write my Ruby. I've just got to make a few little views in HTML. I got some CSS done. Like I'm, I am a ninja at this stuff. But now it feels you know, different. It's like, okay, I can work on a, a feature in Ruby for a while, and then I'm going to have to go and redo my JavaScript tooling to make JavaScript compile because you know something happened. And, and there's all this context switching that maybe there didn't used to be. Yeah. And the, the pace of change, again, like especially I think with JavaScript tooling has sped up so much and, and everything's changing so rapidly that I think we have to go back and reevaluate our tooling and and stuff more often. Yeah, you're working on something right now, aren't you, Josh? That uh, like you're redoing some of our uh, code on our client library for JavaScript. Yeah, I'm working on uh, working on our HoneyBadger.js or our HoneyBadger.js library uh, for a big 1.0 release. Finally, uh, we've been like pre 1.0 all this time, but oh, we're still not up to 1.0 yet. No, I you know I I'm a big fan of semantic versioning, and you don't really have to do it if you're not to 1.0 yet. So you know that's that's a good way around it. But yeah, I think I think the the JavaScript world has definitely made us deal with acceleration. And the dependency management, you know, world, I guess. Like, you know, with Rails, what I really appreciate is that they, they've taken kind of a measured approach. Like, it has definitely changed over the years, but the change comes pretty slowly, mm-hmm. like relatively speaking. You know, every couple of years is a major version and you have to deal with that, right? But it seems like JavaScript libraries, like every couple of months, there's a major version or like one of the five things that you're working with has a major version. So there's like always a major version change happening and you got to like rebuild. Yeah. It. Yeah. The thing I'm working on now is I've been trying to like I, I did. I've done a bunch of feature, like a feature work on the library, but um, it always seems to come back to uh, when I have to work on our build tooling or our uh, CI continuous integration is where I seem to spend the majority of my time, um, especially since I don't develop this package like all the time. So I'll, I'll, you know, let it sit for a while and then come back to it and, and do a bunch of work on it. So usually by the time I get back to it, things things have kind of moved on um, in a lot of ways. And, I, and there's there tends to be things that I need to uh, kind of troubleshoot to to bring up to modern standards again. Yeah, that's I'm feeling the same the same thing about like maybe a year ago I converted all of our uh, CoffeeScript to ES6, and I'm really glad I did it. And as part of that, we have uh, Webpack now in our um, our sort of build system. And we have, in addition to Webpack, we have a lot of, you know, Webpack, we have a lot of dependencies. And so recently we uh, we use this thing called Dependabot to see when any of our dependencies are out of date. They have, uh, you know, maybe security problems with them, stuff like that. It opens a, a PR in GitHub and I guess it was Ben turn this on for JavaScript. And so suddenly we have a ton of dependencies that are out of, out of date. And I've been sort of working through those. Like it's kind of, it's a little bit rough. Um, one thing that I find is really different between um, the the sort of JavaScript dependencies and the Ruby dependencies is that with the Ruby dependencies, it seems like it, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't really done a ton of them, but it seems like okay, it's a new version of the gem. You update, maybe you have to change your code a little bit, but that's it. Uh, but one thing I'm finding with these JavaScript dependencies is that the Dependabot way of upgrading each one individually and then opening a new PR for each upgrade is kind of difficult because you have to upgrade like all these things at once for them to work together or else you're just screwed because they're all so tightly interconnected. I haven't dealt much with the, the JavaScript dependencies, so I, I can't I can't say like the differences between them and the Ruby side. But yeah, definitely I agree that the Ruby dependencies are usually 
pretty independent of each other, right? You can upgrade this gym and, and not that gym and it's stepwise process. Yeah. And there's a lot fewer of them typically. I wonder how big our node modules directory is. I have, you know, back in the in the dark days where like Rails 3 or something, when you would have to update gems, like I remember a number of times where it was like, okay, just bundle update, all right? Update everything at once, and it was like a mess, yeah. right? So uh, maybe that's the same point we're at with JavaScript right now, where you really to get a good update, you have to update everything at the same time, and that's yeah. just a mess. Yeah, and I think it also has a lot to do with like how you lock your dependencies, and like I don't know, I don't know what we're doing on that end as well for for JavaScript too. But that I mean, that's that's also a Ruby thing. Like, and one thing I'm finding with JavaScript uh, dependency upgrades is that, well, we sort of straddle two worlds right with honey badger with our front end because we have on one hand all this modern tooling um we have a lot of javascript but when we started building this we you know this was before uh react this was before you know pretty much all the the you know more modern um, ways of doing things with javascript and so most of our code uses a sort of older paradigm using you know jquery updating the dom and stuff and it works fine like we've got it organized in a way that i'm very happy with one thing I'm finding is that because we use dependencies that are from the sort of older time, we're actually having some of them becoming sort of abandonware. Mm-hmm. And this is a bigger problem for us right now because like, I recently needed to upgrade uh, jQuery to the latest uh, major version. But we use um, uh, jQuery PJAX, which is a plugin, to give us sort of this single page-like TurboLinks style behavior on our front end. And it just doesn't work with the new jQuery because it's abandoned pretty yeah. much. So now in order to upgrade jQuery, we have to migrate to TurboLinks uh, <laughs> or some other, you know, more modern way of doing things. So it's just, it's this back ass words way of, way of working. That's just incredibly frustrating at times because you just want to freaking build features yeah. and ship them. But yeah. Well, I remember back when, tur- when PJAX was like the, the hotness that was well before TurboLinks. And I think it was, was it, it was GitHub that initially, it was GitHub yeah. that initially like kind of started that whole way of doing, you know, making kind of normal traditional web apps faster um, with the PJAX approach. Yeah. And then that's basically what got uh, picked up and rolled into TurboLinks. Um, yeah, maybe we should explain what, what this is. Uh, with PJAX and TurboLinks, instead of having a, a single page application where you have a bunch of JavaScript that creates an application in the browser, uh, what you do is everything is still rendered server side, just like a traditional web application. But there's a little bit of JavaScript that goes in. And when you like click on a link, Instead of fetching a whole new page, it intercepts that and sends an AJAX request to your backend. And the backend renders uh, the new page, sends it to the front end, and JavaScript is used to update and refresh the page. And that may sound like a, a sort of not much of a change, but it actually results in significantly improved performance times because you don't have to reparse all the JavaScript. You don't have to reparse all the CSS that you're using. So it's it's actually a really great uh, compromise. Yeah, I uh, recently threw TurboLinks onto my blog. You know, it was already fast because it's basically just like HTML pages, but it created a noticeable improvement in the in the page load times and and all that. So that was kind of a cool little thing. It's like three lines of code. You just you know throw it into the page and it's done. So my blog is now a single page app. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, it seems to be kind of the thing to do these days. Uh, I, I know a lot of people yeah. who are kind of converting their blogs to React and and you know that sort of stuff. So I figured I'd 
I'd have to, you know, give it a try. I published my personal blog on a Xerox machine. So. Oh, cool. You were saying kind of um, how dependencies, some dependencies tend to become abandonware or become outdated. And that's something that I've also been uh, been running into with this uh, Honey Badger JS, uh, like the build system work, because we use a build system called uh, Grunt, which is, um, it's a build system. It basically lets you create uh, tasks that automate things that you're doing when you're like building the production JavaScript package. It's kind of similar to Rake in Ruby or, or Make even. Um, but it has a bunch of uh, packages that have been, or plugins that have been developed for it. And I've been running into the same thing where because Grunt is not the new hot build system anymore, there's a bunch of other ones, Gulp and like, I'm sure like five others that are even more popular than that now. Uh, I, I keep running into packages that I want to use, but like, the last time the last commit on them was like, you know, 2016, or I'm like running across GitHub issues when I'm trying to figure out how, you know, why something's not working. And I, I check the date and it's like 2013. Oh, <laughs> so those are the worst. Yeah. So it's like, do I use this stuff? Cause some of it actually still works, but it's, you know, it's unsupported obviously, but the only other alternative is set up a new build system and redo everything. And, uh, you know, that, that in itself is a massive yak to shave. So I'm making like yak trade-offs, like which, like, <laughs> like which yak do I want to shave? Like which one is, you know, which one's bigger? So they always say open source isn't free. And I guess this is one of the costs of open source. Yeah. yeah I guess the alternative being that you're stuck with whatever your vendor tries to, to put on you. Right. And, you know, if things are out there, they're like, well, tough, you know, buy the new version. Yeah, that's true. I... <laughs> but I guess a lot of web developers, you know, don't remember the bad old days of like building for a platform like Windows, right, where you only have one choice and that's whatever the the vendor decides yeah. to give you. Like now we have all this choice and all these ways to be able to implement what we want. And so I guess that's the cost, like like uh, Star was saying, that's the cost of a yeah. source. These, these, are pro like these problems we have are problems that more established products have. Like we didn't have these problems when we were starting out because we didn't have as much code. We didn't have as much infrastructure or anything like that. Because we had just built it all, it was all relatively new. So I don't know. I think we should maybe just, you know, ditch this one, start something new. <laughs> that just sounds, yeah, that sounds like it. it's a good solution. Well, you know, one thing that's, that's nice about Dependabot, the thing I've really enjoyed about that is that it keeps you aware of those dependency changes. So you don't get yeah. so behind. Right? Yeah. I think, I think the real, the real pain of abandonware is when you rely on something that's you know that hasn't been updated in three years but you know if you notice that you know things are moving on and you're only behind like three months well that's not quite as painful to update that's true and uh, yeah that's that's what i really like about the it's like oh yeah you should oh i guess you have to combine that with the discipline to actually take some time to go and manage those updates yeah, right mm -hmm. like even if it's a simple ruby gem update right you have to like take a look at the commits and maybe the change log and see what's changed and will this break my app if i add this dependency and uh that takes time yeah. right so i guess i guess you just have to be disciplined about it to really save yourself the pain down the road i think at this point we could it might be a little bit of a stretch but i think we could probably come close to keeping a junior hire busy simply upgrading dependencies and doing tests to make sure that you know everything worked and, and all that yeah across like all our repos and and everything yeah across all the repos i bet yeah. we could keep somebody busy I really like uh, I, yeah. I like what you you said, Ben. Um, a lot of this, like this, what we're calling yak shaving here, is really managing. It's managing technical debt, 
and mm-hmm. not upgrading or, you know, like pushing, pushing things off, like upgrading, um, creates, creates more, uh, more debt down the road. And so when we, when we go and we actually need to get some, get some work done on something and we realize, oh, well, that we haven't touched this place or, you know, these dependencies in, in like a year or two, we have to, you know, pay some interest before we can actually get to work. And so I think like yak shaving is kind of uh, you create more yaks with uh, the more technical debt you have, or you could also call it like interest on your debt. I'm not saying we shouldn't do all this stuff. Yeah. Like we have to, but it's kind of like, you know, you're on a treadmill almost you're running just to stand still. Yeah. Well, some of these automated yeah. tools like Dependabot are, I think really going to help and they already are helping us with that. But as we integrate them more into our development flow, I think that uh, I would expect them to, to help this problem a little bit because we're not going to get this far behind, hopefully. And uh, as long as we are a little bit more disciplined and these tools kind of help us, I think it'll hopefully create less work in the future and less technical debt to deal with. You know, on your note of let's just build something new. I think that uh, is part of the argument behind microservices, right? It's like if you have a new feature you want to build, like, you know, that blog post you just wrote about the autocomplete, right? And you implemented that completely outside of our main app. So you could call that a microservice if you Mm -hmm. want. But the dependencies there are much smaller, right? The scope of the work is much smaller. You're just focused on that one feature. And so you don't have to worry about, you know, this dependency conflicting with that dependency and blah, 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 blah. And so, yeah, I think one of the arguments that people have for going down the microservice route is, oh, we have all these small services that are all very self-contained and, you know, upgrading the dependencies on on them is much easier piece by piece. But then, of course, you have to, you know, do that on like, you know, 20 different apps rather than just one. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like there's, you're right, because you'd be doing more dependency upgrades, but there might be fewer dependencies per upgrade. So there's less chance of them flashing. Yeah. So we talked briefly about um, Turbolinks and stuff. And one thing, this isn't really related to the subject, but it it kind of is because I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this, this new thing, this new technology will completely eliminate the need for me to ever have to set up Webpacker again or Webpack again. And that is, I'm talking about Phoenix Live View. In case people don't know, Phoenix Live View is essentially going to be like uh, TurboLinks on steroids. The thing with TurboLinks is that when you request a new page, what happens is that it goes and it fetches the entire new page and then it puts in the DOM and everything. What Phoenix Live View does is because Phoenix is based in Elixir and Elixir is very, very good at doing high concurrency things. What happens with Phoenix Live View, I think, is that you can actually go and fetch a little component, a part of the page. You can have the server render that and then return it. You can have several of these requests going on at the same time. So essentially, you have a highly interactive sort of front-end type app, but it's being entirely rendered server-side. So there's no need for real, really any sort of custom JavaScript. I don't know. Did I get that right? Yeah, it's it's kind of... I think the, what, the way it struck me when I first saw it was as a Rails, Rails developer is kind of how you can do like JavaScript partials in Rails, you know, like where you'd make like a... Um, like a partial, like an Ajax request to the server, and then you can render out like some sort of JavaScript code that then gets passed back to the server and then executed on the client side. But with Phoenix, the it's so fast that you can actually do that um, almost in in real time, basically. So you can build applications that you couldn't build with, uh, even though Rails can kind of do that, you can't build a real-time application um, just because it's not fast enough. Uh, and with Phoenix Live View, um, at least the claim is, is that it's actually like because of the way Phoenix and, um, and Elixir and Erlang work with uh, with their uh, process model, it is fast enough basically to serve 
um, you know, a bunch of different clients like that in real time, um, to the point almost where you could actually like, you know, have a chat client or even like do real time animation that's server rendering your HTML, which is kind of, that was a example that was crazy to me. Yeah. Because, uh, Phoenix has excellent support for web sockets and all yeah. that, but I think it's, it's a little bit different from JavaScript partials yeah. because I, well, I really hope it's different because JavaScript partials kind of suck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with Live View, you're not sending back JavaScript that manipulates DOM no. and stuff like that. I think what's happening is you're rendering a template, you return some HTML, and then the Live View uh, JavaScript library goes in and does something very similar to React in that it does this own sort of shadow DOM thing where it looks at the snippet of code trying to be inserted in the DOM and then it only changes the elements sort of as necessary in place. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that um, sort of full refresh yeah. sort of penalty. I think that's right. And and the thing that really makes it possible is the WebSocket support because it does everything over a WebSocket, which is why you can... Well, it's one reason why you can take advantage of more like real-time capabilities because it's not making as many round trips to the server. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to work for things like necessarily mobile. It's not going to work for uh, things where you have to have offline access. But, you know, I'm willing to to never write a mobile app if it means <laughs> if it means that, uh, that I, I can write things in pure Elixir and have these beautiful, interactive, fast applications. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's the most Railsy thing I've seen um, that is that is purely Phoenix and Elixir, personally. Like, it's it's really yeah. cool. I could see Rails doing this if Ruby could, could you know if Ruby was capable of it. But because Elixir has those capabilities, it's one of the few things that like I look at it. And it's like wow, that's like you know Ruby really can't handle. It could not. I yeah. don't see it ever being able to handle that sort of thing. And it's a totally unique way to build a web application. And I have to say, it's just even if this thing doesn't pan out, it gives me hope because you know without hope, all I see is endless JavaScript dependencies, endless Node module directories just stretching out before just me. And infinite. it's bleak, guys. It's bleak. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want this future. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a uh, kind of heartening that that people are still trying to build frameworks that that simplify things in that regard. And I think you talk about how um, Rails back in, I don't know what, like 2010 or something was like the golden age of, of web development because it was basically just like simple and, and you could kind of understand the, the full stack. For me, like what I loved about Rails was that it basically took all the stuff that I was already doing and it organized it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't really doing anything new, but it was, it was still, you know, my server-side code and my HTML and CSS and JavaScript, but it was organized in a way that made me a lot more efficient. So I'm hoping, you know, that people still kind of build in that way in the future. Um, I guess like with a lot of this front end stuff, it, it can kind of get pretty complicated pretty quickly. Yeah, as somebody who likes to work in small teams, work by myself and and build products, I really love solutions like that where it's not just like so so much of the process and sort of technology that we have now is about sort of being able to manage complexity. And that's fine, but you still have to manage it. I, I'd rather it just not be there. A lot of these technologies really are built for, um, they're built for much larger teams and larger problems than, or, you know, larger things basically than what we're even doing. Like some of these, the scale of some of these applications that people are using, some of the more complex, you know, like JavaScript frameworks or thing or whatever for, I don't see us really attempting to tackle as a three-person team. So... Oh, I don't think we could. Like, we couldn't build Facebook. Like, that's ridiculous. So I'm wondering, you know, like, are we getting to the point where where the tooling is, like, diverged, where some of the tooling is built for, you know, like, managing a, a massive level of complexity with a massive number of people working on it at the same time? 
does a team like ours really need to use the same tools that you know like Facebook needs to use, for instance? That's an excellent question. So uh, talking about blockers and yak shaving, I, I, I think, guys, I think I'm about ready to give give the Mac desktop another shot. You're thrown <laughs> in the towel, huh? I don't know if I'm thrown in the towel. Like, I love I love my Linux box for running Docker, for doing development on, but pretty much everything that's not Vim and a terminal, it's really starting to get on my nerves. And it's not that you can't set it up to be nice, but you, it's, it's like we talked about with all these uh, dependencies and, and managing that. You set it up to be nice once, and then over time, it just slowly devolves and becomes less and less, and things just j- gradually stop working. And then you have to go in and figure out, well, okay, well, what changed about some new version of a thing to make this not work? And you know that's fine if that's my job, but I don't want to have to do that with like Spotify. Like I don't want to do that <laughs> to be able to freaking put emojis in my tweets. Yeah, you know that's just. Ah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's where that's where I was when I was using Linux on desktop. After several years, I was like, you know what? When when OS ten came out, and I saw the the uh, beauty that was the, the the Mac UI on top of the Unix shell, I thought that was just awesome. I I knew that was where I wanted to be, and I decided like I had used Linux desktop up to that point, and had the same experiences. Like you know, you always got to worry about things that are breaking. And at some point, I just decided, you know what? I want to do work with my computer rather than being working on my computer. Yeah, so I've got a suggestion just for all of us. Let's just destroy our computers <laughs> and we'll buy an ice cream truck and we'll go and sell ice cream to the little children and we'll get to see the smiles on their beautiful faces as they you know, eat their treats. It's just it's so much nicer, so much nicer. The way you describe that is, is beautiful. I know. It's, <laughs> I'm 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 in. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> All right. I think we have enough content. So uh, should we should we say goodbye? ThunderQuest is a weekly podcast by the founders of Honey Badger. Zero instrumentation, 360 degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. If you have a web app, you need it. Available at HoneyBadger.io. Want more from the founders? Go to founderquestpodcast.com. That's one word. You can access our huge back catalog or sign up for our newsletter to get exclusive VIP content. FounderQuest is available on iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of fine podcasts. We'll see you next week.